0: If you have a Bible you can open to First Timothy chapter two. First um, yeah, Timothy chapter two verses one through eight this morning. and then um, so we've been going through a series on worship for six-ish weeks. Um, do you all have the quote from Torrance? Memorized yet. Um, worship is the gift of participation through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. I mean, this basically arise arises directly from um, Ephesians 2:18, which says, For through him, through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, this is what uh, our worship is. And basically, um, you know, we've been looking at worship in light of that. <clears throat> And we can sum up everything so far, I think, and probably sum up the rest of the series uh, with one word, and that word would be love. Uh, sorry, I didn't ask you for your uh, guesses on that one, but um, we could sum up everything in love, right? I mean, God is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, love, a being in love, in communion forever. And God loved us, and he sent his son, Jesus, to become one of us. Um, to lay down his life for us because he loves us. Uh, scriptures teach us what it looks like to respond to God with love, and our love then must shape uh, and uh, and enfold um, each other in our worship. Right? We we give consideration to each other. Our worship is shaped by our love for each other, and God's love calls forth our love for Him. God's love enables our relationship with Him. Uh, he enables us to confess our unlove our self-love, um, and to, to turn our affections and our love truly toward him. Um, and our love to God takes the form of offering ourselves to him, which is um, <clears throat> symbolized and, uh, and, and more in the giving of ourselves, giving of our uh, resources to him. Um, and this morning, we'll talk about then how love shapes our corporate prayers, our corporate prayers. Um, maybe by this in the service Um, you might be familiar enough with uh, the way that our worship goes uh, I'm kind of making up a term here I think but it's uh, friendly transcendence I think I'm making it up because I googled that and nothing theological came up Um, it was all like weird rock bands or things I don't know but uh, friendly transcendence we hope is what kind of characterizes our worship right Um, we don't want to be so friendly that we lack a sense of God's holiness, His distinctness, the otherworldliness of our worship, um, but at the same time, we don't want to emphasize that to the degree where we just feel terror and awe and no love and warmth. Right? We want friendly transcendence, and um, and that's that's what our prayer is, um, and, and our prayers give shape to uh, really the the whole of the worship service. Our prayer. Should be an experience of kind of friendly transcendence, and so um, we'll talk about how uh, how that works and how love uh, factors into that and shapes our prayers. But let me pray, and then we'll um, then we'll read First Timothy. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have uh, not left us in the dark without a testimony of yourself and your love for us, but that you um, have spoken in various times and in various ways through prophets and apostles and especially through your son who is your word to us the full disclosure of who you are Uh, we thank you for revealing yourself to us because if you didn't uh, we would be in trouble and even though you have revealed yourself to us through your word um, you have a resistance to overcome in our hearts We, left to ourselves, would not want to hear about you, even about your great love. And so uh, we ask for your Spirit's help this morning as we consider your word, that we would be uh, truly uh, lifted up in our hearts and our minds to heaven, uh, to uh, the fellowship of the Trinity. We pray that uh, your word would change us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, Fred Sanders uh, wrote a book that Berta let me borrow. Uh, called "I think it's the, "The Deep Things of God." It's about the Trinity. Um, seems to be particular interest of mine uh, lately, but, um, but he says in this book that Christian prayer is a subset of Christian communion with God. Christian prayer is a subset of Christian communion with God. And we've defined worship already basically as communion with God. And so in a few weeks when we talk about communion, we talk about the Lord's table as one of the elements that we observe during our worship, uh, we're going to talk about how basically our whole worship service is communion with God. But um, in another sense, our whole worship service is then prayer, right? There's a sense in which um, prayer as a subset of communion with God uh, uh, defines the whole service, right? The whole worship is, um, is prayer. The whole service is one of communion and communication. Um, in fact, there's a sense in which all of life is meant to be prayer, right? We've heard the apostles, um, instruction to us to pray without ceasing. Uh, we're to live a life that is Godward in every way. Our, our lives are to be an offering to God and a prayer to God, right? Um, you can see kind of an example of this might seem strange to you, but, um, uh, Augustine, the, uh, the great church father, um, he, uh, he wrote the confessions, which are kind of theological reflections, but they're not written like our normal theology texts are. They are a prayer, right? So all of it is directed, all of his thoughts are directed uh, toward God in prayer. So it's an example of how our whole life is to be prayer, but we're going to look at prayer uh, not so generally, not so broadly, uh, not so life and worship encompassing, we're going to look at prayer in particular uh, with regard to uh, the distinct element of worship that, uh, that it is for us in, in our corporate worship especially I think the prayers of the people that's going to make sense um, in light of that so uh, in Acts 2.42 we read this last week it says of the early church that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers um, so the prayers of the people I think are reflective of what was going on there the, prayers of the people will be reflective of what we see in our passage um, so Paul starts off he says first of all then he gives this his, his first commandment to Timothy who is um, the pastor of the church in Ephesus and he's writing this letter uh, telling him how to maybe f- fix some problems in the church and how to develop um, worship uh, among the people there um, he says the first thing I want you to do then Uh, is I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So we could pretty much spend uh, the entire sermon on this verse, but um, let me just quickly point out a few things, actually, that that sort of lay the groundwork for the rest of our passage that uh, come from this. God wants us to pray, period. Right? God wants us to pray. This is God's word to us through the Apostle Paul telling us to pray, and we'll see some reasons uh, why, we should pray. Well, that's good for us as we go uh, through the text more. But second, and we'll see this again a little bit later in uh, verse eight, that God wants us to pray together. Right? This is um, these are commands for the corporate church as we gather together um, that we're supposed to pray. Third, God wants us to pray for all people, and um, that that phrase, especially that word "all," kind of shows up uh, several times, four, uh, at least four times in. Our text, um, and there could be great theological debates about the significance of that word "all," but um, I think the the best way to understand it in this passage is he's talking about all kinds of people, right? All kinds of people. the The significant problem that the early church faced was kind of this um, nationalism or um, tribalism that. Uh, the Jews, who had been God's people for a long time, were not so willing to accept the fact that the gospel was also uh, freely proclaimed and for the Gentiles. And so Paul is always making this, um, this, this appeal to people that, uh, no, it's for everybody, right? All kinds of people. Not necessarily every single individual who ever lived and who lives on the face of the earth. It's, it's, a, it's a categorical all, right? This is for all kinds of people, not just you, right? Uh, this is for... All people. So God wants us to pray for all people, um, and that's uh, that's clear from our text this morning. God wants all sorts of prayers to be made for all sorts of people. Uh, he says, um, with uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, all sorts of prayers. Right? Uh, George Knight is uh, a commentator on this passage. He says he kind of boils these words down. We're not going to spend too much time on the, the distinctions between those words. But um, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, he kind of sees these um, facets of prayer. Is that First, it's making requests for specific needs. Second, bringing those who are in view before God. Third, appealing boldly on their behalf, intercessions. And four, thankfulness for them, actually for the people that we're praying for. So, um, there's, there's a variety of ways that we're supposed to pray for one another and actually throughout the service we have a variety of prayers, don't we? We have um, a prayer of invocation where we uh, invite God to make his presence known to us. He's always with us um, but we want his presence to be particularly known and, and felt and experienced in a way that's transformational for us and honoring to him, right? So we have the prayer of invocation uh, we have prayers of confession and supplication and intercession and illumination before the uh, sermon, we pray that God would help us to understand his word and help us to uh, live by it. We pray sometimes at the end of the sermon for application of it, of the truth, uh, the, the transformation um, by the word. Uh, we, we pray um, communion kind of is a prayer, uh, and, and we pray we especially give thanks during communion. Another word for communion is you know the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, or the Eucharist, which um, Eucharist means thanksgiving. It's it's actually the word that's in um, in verse one that thanksgivings be made for all people. So the the Eucharist, the the time of communion, is our prayer. And <clears throat> this last um, this last time of prayer, by the way, has struck the elders of something that we need to emphasize more and uh, give more attention to. We need to do um, a little bit more clearly. And so um, we're gonna. Institute a new practice for us during worship this morning, um, maybe you 've noticed that um, there are certain parts of the liturgy where an elder will stand and lead the congregation and um, you know we 've had that section in the middle and so kind of informally referring to that person as the the liturgy elder, um, and the liturgy elder uh, generally will be available for prayer uh, in the back corner. Um, during communion. So if you come through the line or if you don't come through the line, you want prayer, uh, you want to give thanks to God, which would be particularly appropriate during the Eucharist, the time of thanksgiving. Um, You have some desperate needs that you want to pray. You want to maybe even confess your sins again (laughs) to somebody in particular. Um, If you want prayer, then there will be an elder uh, starting this week um, available for prayer in the back. And hopefully that's not so uncomfortable as having an elder available for prayer in the front. so, in the back, um, we do all want to pray for one another, and we're glad to see when people request prayer, but we know that maybe it's a little bit awkward for you to be right here in the front row while everybody's walking past you. So, um, so we're going to institute that new practice for us. God wants us to make all kinds of prayers <clears throat> for, um, for all kinds of people. For example, in verse 2, <clears throat> for kings and all who are in high positions... That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. For kings and all who are in high positions, like like moms. It's Happy Mother's Day, uh, people in high positions, um, right? He singles out this subgroup of all people. He says, "I want you to pray for all people." Um, here's an example: kings and people who are in high positions, right? People who have influence. He singles them out because of their influence on the spread of the gospel, right? He says that that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is not to say um, pray so that the government will just leave us alone, uh, so we can enjoy life without feeling constricted by those who are in authority over us, right? Right? he says that uh, this is good, praying for this and, and living this way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're not just praying that um, everybody would just get along. We're actually praying that the rulers would facilitate peace so that all kinds of people would then hear the gospel and believe it and be saved. right? Because God desires all kinds of people to be saved, right this doesn 't mean that the political or social climate has to be just so in order for the gospel to advance or else it can 't happen. Uh, clearly, the gospel has um, absolutely thrived in places where uh, the government itself has persecuted the church i mean take take the um, church in China, for example, which has been uh, for the last few decades i guess uh, Existing mostly underground because of persecution. Um, Several places in the world where that's common. But for example, the Roman emperors who reigned when this very letter was written, when the the whole New Testament was written, um, they were not exactly friendly toward Christians. uh, But it's recorded for us, um, even in Acts, that Paul himself benefited when he was in Ephesus, uh, which would have been in the memory of the people to whom he's writing here. when he was in Ephesus, the, the Roman magistrates stopped riotings and uh, riots. And they, they've, uh, at various points throughout his ministry, stopped him from being beaten and um, general chaos, right? They're, they're facilitating peace in a way so that uh, communication can actually take place, the gospel can actually uh, advance. So Paul's telling Timothy and the church in Ephesus under his care to pray for those whose job it is to maintain civil order. Right, That's their job. That's what God has been doing. Um, he's given them authority to do is maintain civil order. Now John Stott points out that this was a remarkable instruction since at that time no Christian ruler existed anywhere in the world. We're not just praying for Christian rulers, we're praying for all rulers. Um, So our first instinct when it comes to our government should not be to complain that they're not living as Christians. It should not be to complain that they're not doing things the right way, which oftentimes just boils down to our way, um, right? We're not, that, that shouldn't be our first instinct. Our, our first instinct should be to pray for them so that they will facilitate conditions that are agreeable to the spread of the gospel. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just not anarchy would be helpful, right? Um, and that that's what uh, the prophet Jeremiah uh, it says in uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, God instructs Israel, who's been um, taken into captivity. says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of Babylon. Babylon, which is always given as the the most hideous example of a human city in its rebellion and autonomy from God, right? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's, that's what Paul is encouraging us to do. <clears throat> um, Clement of Rome, uh, kind of one of those early bishops, end of the first century, uh, wrote a letter to the Corinthians. I think he wrote a couple letters, letters to the Corinthians, but uh, the first of which... <clears throat> He offers a prayer in this vein he says grant them lord health peace harmony and stability so that they may give no offense in administering the government you've given them All right so we're to pray for the good of the world not against the world right we're to pray for the good of the world and ultimately we do that as we pray for god's kingdom to come right that's the that's the only way the world is going to see its best good is if God's kingdom comes, uh, which only comes through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what uh, we do in our prayers of the people. We regularly pray for our leaders, like we did this morning, for our president and Congress. Sometimes for our governors and mayors, and <clears throat> we pray for our nation. We pray for peace in our nation and between nations in God's world, right? And that's good. It's good to pray those prayers. And it makes God happy, which is a paraphrase of verse 3. It's good, and it makes God happy. um, Because he desires all people to be saved. Uh, He's not just in this for you. He's not just in this for our particular little club. Uh, His vision encompasses the whole globe. His heart goes out to the whole world. In verse 5, it says, because there is one God. There is one God. There is not, as people everywhere and throughout history have uh, always assumed, there is not a particular God for a particular people group and a different God for this people group or a whole host of gods for this people group, right? If anyone is going to be saved, it's because they've come into a relationship with the one true only God. There is only one he's the only one out there. There's no other choice. Paul assumes this in his argument. He doesn't um, uh, take time to bolster his claims about uh, there being only one God. He assumes it for his argument, and before, uh, maybe this is an uncomfortable idea for you, right, that there's only one God that we would be saying such things, and I think the um, accusation against Christians is that we're arrogant for making such claims about uh, truth and about god uh, before you just kind of jump to that conclusion uh, that we're making an arrogant claim um, just assume it for the sake of the argument okay if you want to talk more about this um, we can talk about it later over coffee uh, but i think it'll make sense we're not just making arrogant claims about there being only one god right this is um, this is important for us to understand as the uh, the basis for our prayers, the basis for our evangelistic prayers. He's the only God out there. There's no other choice. And that means if people have not heard about him yet, they're going to need to hear about him. And so we, we need to pray to that end. Right? And there's only one way to God, and they're going to have to hear about that too. Right? So it says in the uh, end of verse 5 and in verse 6, there's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. all right, so um, there's only one God. There's only one go-between. Right. There's only one way for anyone to be reconciled to this God, and that's through the mediator who is both God and man. He's both divine and human. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He always has been, he always will be, second person of the trinity and he became a man in order to redeem fallen humanity to give himself as a substitute payment as a substitute ransom to purchase us back from sin from death and from god's wrath from hell and to purchase us for god and life and obedience and for eternity that's the testimony of God's love for the world. That's the gospel that Paul preached. That's the message of Christ that we preach because the whole world needs to hear it. That's what this text says. The whole world needs to hear, but God wants the whole world to hear about the one true God and the one mediator between God and man. And if the world needs it, then the church needs to pray to God for it. Philip Towner says, he's a commentator on on the book of 1 Timothy, says that Paul's primary concern here is the church's prayer for the salvation of all people, which prayer is not optional or subsidiary in the least. It is intrinsic to the church's reason for existing and to the accomplishment of the larger evangelistic goal. And that's why it's good for us to pray this way for all people, as it says in verse 3, because when we have this instinct, when we have this desire in our hearts, when we are led to pray for all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and know God as a Savior, then we're imitating God as our Savior, right? He's, he's our Savior. We're imitating him. We, we have evangelism, uh, the salvation of others, as the goal of our prayer because evangelism is God's goal, right? Because God is love. Because God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect in love forever. Um, In fact, because God is a trinity, God is actually a God of prayer. The Son, Jesus Christ, having lived and died and risen from the dead for us, he ascended into heaven, he returned to his Father. And it says in Hebrews 7, he holds his priesthood, Permanently, that, that kind of mediatorship, right? The go-between, between us and God. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's at God's right hand, praying for us forever. God is a praying God. It says in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God wants us to pray because God prays. Because God dwells in perfect communion and communication from eternity past, and he knows how, how difficult it is for us to do that, so he prays for us. All right. Fred Sanders again says, you don't have to get your Trinitarian theology all sorted out before you can pray to the Trinity. Our God hears prayers. He does not wait for us to pass the theology test before he listens to us praying. God the Father knows what we need before we ask. God the Son is a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, giving us confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. And God the Spirit knows how to pray even when we do not, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words, whether or not we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. God has his Trinitarian theology in good working order long before we show up. The possibility of praying in a more Trinitarian way is all promise and no threat, all invitation and no danger. So what we're doing when we pray, especially when we pray corporately, right together, especially when we pray evangelistically for the sake of other people to come to a knowledge of God through Christ, is we're joining in with what's been happening since eternity past and with what will continue to happen into eternity future. We're entering into the very life of God. We're sharing God's love. We're sharing God's mission we have an outward face even during our prayers right? we don't just pray for ourselves we pray for the needs of those around us so that all kinds of people can come to the knowledge of God and this fights our <clears throat> self-centered tendencies um, against our uh, tendencies to be parochial and tribal uh, in our concerns right? um Arrogant, self righteous people don't pray this way. Uh, The people who pray this way for the sake of other people uh, are people who know God's mercy for themselves. So we're not just praying for ourselves, we're not just praying for our families, we're not just praying for our church, we're praying for everyone because that is reflective of who God is and it's reflective of, of what pleases Him. It's reflective of God's stated goals. Throughout the history of salvation, it's reflective of God's covenant promises throughout the scriptures. Right? Um, George Knight says that God's concern for all was expressed in the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, um, in the statement that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right, that's his goal. That's his mission, is to bless all the families of the earth. And the temple which the New Testament uh, identifies with the church was always meant to be a house of prayer for all peoples right? a house of prayer for all nations as it says in Isaiah 56 was our Old Testament reading it's a place for foreigners for strangers for people who are out on the fringe who might otherwise be neglected by people who are inside like us um It's a place for them to come and be joined to the Lord, it says in Isaiah 56. Those who join themselves to the Lord will have a place, will have a name better than a son or daughter, right? It's an everlasting name. It's a name that shall never die. It's a name that is uh, given by God to them forever as they're brought in, they're joined to the Lord into his temple into his house of prayer uh, and and that's where we experience joy right that's what's going on in uh, isaiah 56 so as we come together as god's temple which is what this is it's uh, the place on earth where god is worshiped in the gathering of his people Uh, we're to pray then to that end for these foreigners for the gospel to go out and bring people in that they'd be united to the lord right and in order for that to happen God's love has to rule in our hearts. That makes sense? Um, he says, I desire then, in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. And it is um, gender-specific language at this point and kind of stopped before we get into this very kind of uncomfortable discussion of the, the distinctions between men and women in the worship service. Um, we just don't have time to talk about the debates. Um, but um, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And, and George Knight says this likely this is referring, when he says in every place, he's referring to the various meeting places of the church. And I, I apologize um, that we don't have time to read further about the instructions for women, but I do think that this instruction gives us all something to think about, uh, to consider regarding our corporate prayer the lifting of holy hands which is what Paul commands here <clears throat> is, um, is a common posture for prayer that we see throughout the scriptures you see all kinds of postures where the body is engaged and we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about singing but um, you know you could kneel or you could lie face down on the ground or you could sit um, that's in the Bible you can just sit and, and pray um, you can stand and lift your hands, right? But the lifting of holy hands is more than just um, just a posture for prayer. It's not the only reason why Paul's referencing it here. Hands, um, this is common to our experience too, they're, they're symbolic for the offering of one's whole life to God, right? Um, what we do with our hands is symbolic of our lives and our service and... Um, what we um, present as worship to God. It said in the, um, the psalm that we read uh, for our prayer earlier this morning, the prayer of invocation, Psalm 24, um, verses 3 and 4 ask, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Which is like here. <laughs> he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Um, and ultimately, this is a picture of Jesus Christ who has ascended into the holy place, the only one truly ever to have clean hands and a pure heart. But it's, it's, um, it means us too, who come to God, who ascend into heaven ourselves through faith in the mediator, who is our representative, right? Um, so we are to pray then, not just with hands that have been Washed in a bronze laver on the way into a temple where we're going to sacrifice some animals. We're to pray with holiness of life. Uh, And that's holiness of our inner life and the outer dimensions of our lives, right? Our whole life is to be holy. And that's what's symbolized here when we pray for the salvation of other people, right? And Paul singles out anger and quarreling says without those things right? don't pray with those things going on among you uh, he singles those out as antithetical to the proper attitudes for such prayer and that makes sense doesn't it Um, John Stott says it is obviously inappropriate to approach God in prayer if we are harboring resentment or bitterness against him or other people as Jesus himself insisted reconciliation must precede worship there's a sense in which In our hearts, reconciliation has to be happening. Maybe it's not perfected, uh, but we've given ourselves to it. Reconciliation has to precede worship, has to precede prayer. In fact, reconciliation, uh, the bringing together of those who have been um, experiencing disfellowship, disunity, into unity. Reconciliation and the desire for reconciliation, love, is what defines this sort of worship. It, d- it defines this sort of holiness. It defines this sort of prayer. Right? Love, unity, congregational harmony, is the great result of God's grace at work among us. Right? God's grace is the only thing can, that can bring about this kind of love. In one body... In Christ, God has united all kinds of people who would otherwise be angry with each other and quarreling with each other all the time. All right? He has brought reconciliation. He's brought love in the body of Christ. And love is the driving motivator behind our prayer, behind our evangelistic prayer. As we imitate the one who has saved us, who's been merciful to us, we imitate him in our desiring for that mercy, for that love to be known by other people, right? Love is, further, it's the goal of our prayers, right? That all sorts of people would be united to, to us, with us, in Christ, forever, right? Love is holiness. Because, um, you know, the word holiness... It's uh, being set apart. It's being distinct, right? And love is the holiness. It's that which sets us apart from the world. We're set apart for God, right? And love arises from God himself because God is love. Love is the kind of holiness that gives our worship that sense of friendly transcendence. So place your hope in the love of God your Savior and let his love compel you to pray for others that they also would know his love. Um, That's good worship. It's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God. Now let's pray. Father, we do pray that your love uh, would invade our hearts and minds in such a way that um, we would know our connection to you through christ and in your spirit and we would be changed by it to to be more like you in loving all kinds of people even those who are our enemies that we would even pray for our enemies and we know that this can only happen as you persuade us of your love for us as you persuade us of the grace that is freely given to us in the gospel of jesus christ and so We pray that that gospel would be always in our hearts and in our minds. That we would become a gracious and merciful and kind and loving people in imitation of God our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.